says, Now when they had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derb and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bed, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. No worries. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had taken him up or come up, they'd broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak. And he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Azos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our worship through the Word of God that your spirit would speak to us what you would have us to receive from this inspired portion of your word that you gave to us for your good purpose. We ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, important to remember that God rules over all affairs, over every situation, and he's involved in everyday circumstances on the earth. And that truth is important for us because walking with the Lord includes a proper understanding that experiencing the spiritual, experiencing the spiritual and also being practical many a times work together. That's what we see happening in this section here. In the passage we're looking at this morning, we basically have in the book of Acts a travel log of the missionary team of Paul the Apostle and those who served with him and their activities. Indeed, there's a clear work of the ministry of God transpiring, but there's also a number of very practical decisions that are taking place, very practical everyday affairs and circumstances. I mean, how much more practical can you get than a long-winded sermon and somebody falling asleep in church? I mean, that's about as practical as you can get 
there in the Bible. And again, we see the spiritual and the practical working in connection as God's will unfolds. Remember the background after three years of very fruitful ministry in Ephesus, which we've been looking at together. Paul, being led by the Lord, once again moved on at the Lord's leading. That was the longest place Paul stood anywhere. He had a ministry where he would, in seasons, minister for a time. And the Lord would call him on and he'd move on to a next season, a next purpose that the Lord had for him. And we saw being led of the Spirit's guidance that Paul purposed and planned. We saw in our last chapter, it said to go back through the areas of Macedonia and Achaia once again, where churches were established and he administered and he was going to go back and retrace his steps there again to up, uh, in a sense, you know, upkeep with the ministry in those locations where he had connections with people. He was then going to go to Jerusalem because he sensed the Lord was directing him there. And ultimately he said he wanted to visit Rome. So this was Paul's intention and plan. We saw as we left off last week in verse 1 of chapter 20 that Paul gathered together for a final time with the believers in Ephesus. It says he embraced them and verse 1 tells us he then departed to go to Macedonia to revisit those churches he had planted and ministered to before. Now, we know from Paul's letters that he wrote in the New Testament passages, for example, like Romans chapter 15, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we gather from those New Testament letters that there was a direct connection in Paul sensing from the Lord that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem next and also that he was purposely to go through the area of Macedonia and Achaia in route on his way to Jerusalem because the believers in the church in Jerusalem we know from these other New Testament accounts that I just mentioned believers in the church of Jerusalem had fallen upon hard times financially we don't know exactly what transpired that caused it but they were suffering in some way in hardship and the Christians in the churches in Macedonia and Achaia hearing of the financial struggle and the hardship of their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem, they were moved by the love of God from the Holy Spirit to basically take up a collection of money that they wanted to then send as relief or aid to the believers there in Jerusalem to help alleviate some of their burden and their struggle. So they wanted to send this financial gift and Paul and his team were going to receive that monetary gift and they were going to be the ones to transport and deliver that money to help out as a gift those in the church in Jerusalem. Romans 15, verse 25 and 26, Paul says, But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And again, remember, the majority of the Jerusalem church were predominantly Jews who converted to become followers of Christ. They were Messianic Jews, Jews who recognized Jesus as their Messiah and were now serving him as their Lord. The churches of Macedonia and Achaia, however, were predominantly Gentile in their population, that is non-Jewish. So this desire and action practically of taking up this love gift to send financial aid to the suffering Jewish Christians in Jerusalem from the Gentile Christians would be an incredible act of demonstrating love as well as fostering unity between this new spiritual family God created where Jew and Gentile were now one in Christ. 
And so there was a very practical aspect of this that would foster unity and love among them. So Paul had already sent Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. And now as we move on, we see the rest of the team kind of following Paul uh, or following uh, where Timothy's at and moving along with Paul to connect in Macedonia. Look with me in verse 2 as our text opens. It says, now when he, that's Paul, had gone over that region, that is the region of Macedonia, and encouraged them with many words, he then came to Greece and stayed there for three months. So while Paul goes back through the region of Macedonia and then ultimately to Achaia, notice in verse 2 here we can see that he focused his efforts upon teaching and counseling and speaking to the people there, the believers in those churches, in order to build them up spiritually. And we all know, Paul knew better than anybody, that it can be a real challenge sometimes, can it not, as a believer to try and remain faithful to the Lord in a sinful world, in the midst of dealing with temptation to sin and resisting worldly things and trying to honor the Lord and do His will when everyone else maybe in the world is going in a different direction and then add into that spiritual warfare. Paul knew it was a common thing for us as believers to grow discouraged at times, to get weary in trying to remain faithful to the Lord. Paul himself would be the one who, who says in Galatians, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't lose heart or give up. And notice Paul said, us. Paul said, I understand what it's like. Let us not grow weary in well-doing because it's easy to do that. So that's why notice in verse 2 here in our text, it says that Paul, what did he do when he went through that area to visit the Christians and the churches? It says he encouraged them with many words. That is both through counseling and fellowship as well as certainly teachings from the word of God he spoke things to strengthen them in their relationship with the Lord to build them up to renew their courage that's what encouragement is to renew courage to inspire them in the things of the Lord to encourage them in the things of being faithful to their service to Jesus and you know if we use our words like Paul intentionally and wisely it's incredible the impact of using words how helpful they can be. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Jesus did that masterfully. And you and I, with the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, allowing our lives to be useful to the Lord Christ in us and saying, Jesus, now use my life. Take me where you want me to go. Let me speak and say what you want me to say. Well, sometimes the Lord may give to you or to I the tongue of the learned so that we might know how to speak a word in season, a timely word to someone who's weary to encourage a brother or to build up a sister or to have a conversation through phone or, or, or whatever it may be to speak or give a teaching or a message that would bring encouragement to the souls of people. No, perhaps today even you're here and you're growing weary in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you're kind of weary in trying to just be faithful to Jesus when it feels like others around you aren't or maybe you're the only Christian in your family. Or maybe you're weary in serving the Lord and being faithful in ministry or trying to continue to do what you know is right. Well, let me perhaps give you, if you need an encouraging word, 
I'll give you what God says. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There are lots of other things that we can give time, energy, and effort to that can end up being vain. But the Bible, the Holy Spirit through it, promises to us that any labor or effort we do that is for the Lord, in the Lord, will never be vain. Because somehow God will use it for his good purposes and it pleases the Lord. It's not a vain thing to do such things. So Paul ultimately, it says, travels the end of verse 2 all the way down, ministering in these different locations in Macedonia, down through Achaia. It says he comes down to Greece, kind of the southernmost area there of Achaia, where he then stays for three months and likely just kind of continues this pattern. Now, we have a map. I'm just going to leave it up on the screen for you this morning if we can put the map up. For those of you who sat up front, you actually get, see it's good to sit in front of the class. You can actually probably see the map. And those of you in the back are going, I knew we shouldn't sit in back in church. Now God confirmed it because you probably can't read the little words, and I'm sorry for that. But hopefully this will help. I'll give you a little bit of a reference this morning as we're kind of looking at a travel log. We're just going to leave that up there. But look with me back in your Bible, if you would, most importantly verse 3 it says that after Paul spent three months in the area of Greece when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria he decided to return through Macedonia now again notice the incredible practicality of those travel decisions I mean you want to talk about incredible practicality from Greece the southern tip of the area of Achaia Paul was about to go back across what would be the Aegean and ultimately the the Mediterranean Sea back over to the area it says of Syria but somehow it became revealed that there was it says verse 3 a plot of these Jewish individuals who opposed Paul against his life as he was going to get on board and sail across the seas so there's an assassination plot that is put together on Paul's life. Maybe they came together and with this murderous plot said, okay, let's just get on board with him as he takes this journey. And when we're out in the middle of the open sea, hey, we'll kill Paul, we'll kill his companions, we'll throw them overboard in the ocean blue, and we're done with this guy. So there's an assassination plot somehow, maybe through practical means, people talk, right? It comes to Paul's awareness that there's this plot to put him and maybe his team members to death. And instead of Paul pushing forward and sailing as he wanted to and planned to, what does he do? He wisely and practically decides to be flexible and alter his ministry plans because circumstances have just unfolded that would probably say to Paul, if he's thinking clearly, you might want to change your travel plans. Maybe getting on board and sailing across that ship with a bunch of people who want to murder you might not be a good idea. Maybe you should do something different. And it's at that point, verse 3 tells us, that Paul, in light of that, instead of sailing over to Syria, he decided to return again through Macedonia. So what Paul does is he takes instead the land route and he loops back to the north, north and east, going back up through the area of Macedonia once again, kind of looping back and retracing his steps from which he already came. Now, was that indeed a bit longer journey? Absolutely. Certainly it would take longer, but wisdom said very clearly to Paul, this is probably a closed door to get on board of that boat right now. Because if you get on board with that boat, the door is going to close 
forever on your earthly ministry because they're going to put you to death. And Paul recognized, so therefore, it seems God circumstantially, because God controls circumstances and he rules over the affairs of everything that happens, even good and evil. God sovereignly rules. And Paul realized it seems that sovereignly God's just, he's indicated to me through circumstances, the door's kind of closed. It may be disappointing. It may not have been what I planned, but I'm going to have to call an audible here and adjust and keep moving forward. So he now retraces his steps with the land route, traveling up and around. And again, can I just say how absolutely practical that is? How reasonable? How sometimes we need to take into consideration that practical everyday affairs of life, situations that arise in your lives, folks, circumstances Things that happen that you weren't planning on happening, but they just happen and you had no control over them to recognize in those things that we need to be practical in our responses. And that indeed at times is a part of sometimes being sensitive to the leading of the Lord and just letting the Lord redirect and maybe re-guide us and maybe we'll ultimately get to the same place or do the same thing, but maybe it's through a different path. Or maybe just a different timing. Or maybe God has something first. He wants us to do different. That's all together. Verse 4 says, And Sopater of Berea, as well as Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derb and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia, notice it says there, verse 4, that they accompanied Paul to Asia. So we have here these seven men who were companions with Paul and his missions and ministry team, and they traveled with him and served in partnership alongside of him. We're told here that they accompanied him on this trip and his activities all the way back through Asia, no doubt providing things like accountability, assistance, and help. Paul couldn't do everything. Everything wasn't his strength, and so having different people with different contributions and capabilities, as well as the fact that it was great opportunity for learning. People like Timothy and others who traveled with Paul and served together with him as hands-on ministry training. As they accompanied him, they saw how Paul handled things, what Paul did. He gave them opportunities at times to do some of the same things. And this practical pattern of doing things together in the Lord is really, I believe, a part of the heart of the Lord and his purposes for us, that we would do things Together, And, you know, I encourage you, try to initiate practically things like this in your journey and in your Christian life, whereby perhaps at times you make an endeavor to accompany people when they do things. Maybe rather than letting somebody do something alone, that you accompany them, go along with them so they don't have to go alone. Or maybe at times when you do certain things, look for an opportunity to invite somebody along to accompany you. Whether it's just for fellowship, whether it's for accountability, there are a lot of benefits of serving in partnership and together in doing things beyond just by ourselves. It provides accountability for us. It provides help and support and assistance. It's a great learning opportunity. So much more many times is learned you know, in, in occupational trade work. People do what they call apprenticeship. And that's the idea. It's not sit in a classroom. It's apprenticeship. It's watch me you know, do this electrical work and then, okay, now you try and do that. Or here, you do this part while I do this part. And same thing with walking with the Lord. Great opportunities for others to learn and for us to learn from others. The Bible says in Proverbs, he who walks with the wise grows wise. And so here we see these companions with Paul traveling with him. 
accompanying him. Verse 5 says, These men then going ahead waited for us, Paul says at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed then for seven days. So you can kind of tell us a lot like, again, like I said, a travel log. Notice in verse 5 and 6 here, if I can draw your attention, as they move back through Macedonia toward Troas, it seems that Dr. Luke rejoins the mission and ministry team of Paul the Apostle and his companions. Now, Luke, remember, the doctor, is the one who wrote the narrative, this record of the book of Acts. And notice in verse 5 and 6, a change in pronouns. The pronouns now change from and he and he referring to Paul and now it says they waited for us at Troas and we sailed from Philippi and joined them where we stayed seven days notice Luke's including himself back in the narrative and record of Paul's activities now it seems from Acts chapter 16 or so that Paul uh, either left or asked or maybe Luke felt it of the Lord to remain in the area of Philippi when Paul moved on and for a season they were separated from serving together but now at this point somewhere in the journey after a season Luke is reunited back with Paul and the team and now they start serving together in the things of the Lord once again he's saying we are doing this this is where you know they waited for us and now there's this reunion this reconnection where these two serve together in partnership and i look at this and it's a great reminder to me that as the lord directs the journeys of our lives as christians the things we do for the lord and as we journey through our christian walk sometimes we may be separated for seasons Sometimes the Lord may separate us from someone circumstantially that we were ministering with or serving with or doing things with. And then sometimes, if it lines up with the purpose of the Lord, he then may rejoin us for a new season. And he may put us back together again and allow us once again to come together and re-engage in that partnership as it pertains to what he has for the next season. And we see Luke here now back on board there at Troas where they stayed for seven days. Verse 7 tells us, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, as we go into verse 7 and down, we start to get some insight regarding the gatherings, or we might say the worship meetings, the church services, whatever you want to call them, as believers would get together among the early church. Notice, first of all, if you would, in verse 7 with me, uh, when believers typically gather, the Holy Spirit tells us, verse 7, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together. Here we have in the Bible the first clear reference anyway to early Christians routinely meeting on Sunday. On the first day of the week, it seemed it became their habit and routine to regularly meet for worship and fellowship. Remember, Saturday, often referred to as the Sabbath day from the Old Testament, was that prescribed time of the Sabbath day of rest under Mosaic law, those observing Mosaic law for the Jews, that they would assemble together. And that would happen on a Saturday or the last day of the week. 
Therefore, Sunday became known as the first day of the week, and it was the day, it seems, that New Testament believers started meeting. Again, we know from Jesus' work in the New Testament tells us that what Jesus did fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And the mandates and the requirements to observe certain regulations of the law, even the keeping of Sabbath, as if somehow that would be imposed upon us to have to do that. Because Jesus fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law that we might live under grace in our walk with him. Now, Jesus, we know, also rose back from the dead on Sunday on the first day of the week. That was Jesus' resurrection day. So even a Sunday brought a new week, Jesus' resurrection brings new life, and it seems that his followers, appreciating what his resurrection brought to them, chose that special day by way of habit to celebrate his powerful resurrection, and they therefore began to assemble routinely as Christians, as New Testament believers on Sundays for their gathering, that was when they would assemble and they'd celebrate their relationship with the Lord. Here we have record of that. We see it in other places in the New Testament. We know the early church fathers referenced that this tended to be the habit of when believers assemble. So if you ever wonder why the churches meet on Sundays traditionally or, or typically, well, uh, there's kind of where that stems from. That this seemed to be the day that they routinely gather to reflect and worship the Lord. Now, that being said, though Sunday was the traditional day the early church and early believers gathered on Sundays, let me say this. There is no biblical mandate or requirement that Christians have to assemble for worship meetings on Sunday or on any given day for that matter. Romans chapter 14 addresses this, Colossians chapter 2. The Bible instructs us, folks, to gather to meet routinely. That we are to meet routinely, that we're to gather regularly, that we're to assemble together with a routine, regular you know, perspective for worship and fellowship. Yet when we do it, that is the day of the week or the time that we get together, that is not nearly as important to the Lord as the fact that we are committed to doing it. When we do it is nowhere near as important as the fact that are we committed to routinely assembling. Hebrews chapter 10, in fact, tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Again, the Bible says we're not to forsake assembling. And if you know Christians who say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, so that's why I don't go to church. I stay home. I do home church. Well, look, I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again. The Bible says that Jesus is like the groom and that you and I as the church are are the bride of Christ And, and, and that he's the head of the church. Jesus is the head and we're the body. Now, how appropriate would it be for me if I were to say to my wife, you know what? I mean, your head from here up, wow. I'm in love with your head. Your face, your head, your body, I don't know if I'm into that. Do you think that'd go over real well? But the Bible says that Jesus and his church, the body, the head and the body are connected. He's the head, we're the body. So you see, it doesn't fly real well with Jesus. Well, I love Jesus, I love the head. The body, I'm not interested in the body of Christ. I don't need the body of Christ. Look, I know sometimes we get disappointed but look, this is the best dysfunctional family going. And not just this local congregation, the body of Christ as a whole. 
Right? I mean, the Bible says don't forsake the assembling. It doesn't matter what day, but we are to be assembling together. And it's not important when we do it, but what we do. And here in verse 7 and down, we get some of the implication and biblical insight of what things they did. It says on verse 7 that they came together to break bread. Now, the idea there is an implication. It speaks culturally how they spent time together. They gathered, they assembled, they broke bread together. Often they shared meals together, which was very common culturally for them to do to have a sharing of their lives. Breaking bread also at times, too, was used to speak of or infer communion, partaking of the Lord's Supper. And what is celebrating communion? Well, it is a a worshipful act whereby we put our focus upon the Lord Jesus and what he did for us. And we experience the Lord and we put our attention on the Lord. So we begin to see some of what the church should be doing when we, when we recognize our purpose of being together as a family of God. One of the things we should be doing very practically is getting together. The church is supposed to get together. They gather together on the first day. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to gather ourselves together. We're supposed to engage in fellowship with one another, spend time together. Why? Because we need encouragement. Because the world beats us up all week long and tries to conform us into the pattern of the world. And we need to come together and build each other up and, and receive from one another and give to one another what we need to be strengthened and encouraged. To remember who we are and to have accountability. And and the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, that same passage, that we're to stir up love and good deeds among one another. That's what happens when we come together. When the body life happens and we build each other up in love, it's a time to invest in one another and help each other. And through times like this, we're also to be as they were, doing things like they were, observing communion doing worshipful acts, singing, praying, these different aspects of worship that make up the way that we experience the Lord in the Spirit as we give acts of worship to Him in different ways and seek the Lord together as the family of God. We also notice in verse 7, pretty clearly it's hard to miss, that Paul was teaching and instructing spiritually because it says, thinking he was going to depart the next day, he spoke to them And he continued his message all the way until midnight. Now, it seems that this was kind of a Sunday evening church meeting. What is obvious from the record, and it's kind of hard to dismiss, is the great emphasis the early church gatherings and meetings put upon, you know, extensive spiritual instruction. I mean, that's pretty obvious in the text. The Holy Spirit wants us to know Paul got long-winded in his sermon that night, yet people wanted to learn. They were hungry to listen. It actually says, it's not a misprint in your Bible there, it says he was speaking and continued his message until midnight. I have, wow. I mean, that's, that's long. That's a long message. That indicates, folks, he literally taught God's word and gave spiritual instruction at least, I don't know what time he started, at least for a few hours. That's an extensive Bible study. And he taught till pretty late at night when people work the next day, all the way until midnight. 
Granted, that doesn't mean that's how every church service went when they gathered on a Sunday. Paul knew it says there he was going to depart the next day, and this was a unique situation. He might never see them again. So he wanted to invest everything he could into them to really helpful in this meaningful moment. It kind of became like a Bible conference with teaching sessions all the way till late at night. But what is undeniable practically, and you can't dismiss it from the text, is it's very evident the Holy Spirit records this to let us know that if a pastor continues his message until midnight and people stick around and listen, apparently one mark of the early church and early Christians is they put a large emphasis upon thorough spiritual instruction in their meetings. That when they gathered and came together, there apparently, even in the early church gatherings, was a strong emphasis upon thorough teaching and spiritual instruction. No denying that the people had a heart to learn. There was an appetite to want to hear from God. Beautiful to see. It doesn't seem to be there was any yearning to be entertained. You know, how slick can the presentation be or how you know, much can you do things to stimulate us? Look, the world stimulates people all week long. All week long. I don't know about you. I kind of want a refuge when I come to church. I want a refuge. Can I have a quiet sanctuary? And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with utilizing technology and not saying that, you know, a pastor should aspire to be boring and put people to sleep. I'm not saying that. That's a crime too. But nonetheless, the people here, they had a hunger and an appetite. It's very obvious they were willing to participate in extended spiritual instruction. And I firmly believe that when the church assembles together, there should be to some extent thorough, extensive biblical instruction for God's people to help them grow in the Lord, to be strong in the faith and serve Jesus fruitfully and faithfully. Well, as Paul spoke, continuing his message till midnight, Some practical challenges did happen. We saw it. Look at verse 8. It says there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. Poor guy. He's named forever. Who was sinking into a deep sleep. And then he was overcome by sleep as Paul continued speaking. And he fell down from the third story window and actually died. But Paul went down, fell on him, embracing him, saying, Don't trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he had come up, broken bread and eaten, he then talked a long while, even till daybreak. And then he departed, and they brought in the young man alive, and they were not a little comforted. So yes, even in the early church, people fell asleep during the pastor's sermon. Wow. Don't tell me the Bible is not practical. Now, consider the tough combination that poor young Eutychus had to fight off. I mean, it was difficult. First of all, we know they had a nice meal when they came together. And I can tell you this, having young men now coming around my house, one daughter just married, another one on her way to get married, and these young men who are like Tyrannosaurus Rex size in comparison to me, they eat a lot. I had to start doing portion control. Leftovers for lunch the next day just went out the window when they came around. So they eat a whole lot of food, right? So Eutychus, he's got a full belly. He's intensely full. We all know what happens when you've got a full belly and then you sit 
for a long period of time and you're not active. It says, verse 8, that many lamps were burning in the room, which means it's kind of smoky and hazy. There's a decrease of oxygen. You get in the combination at this point. Oxygen's decreasing. The room is crowded. It's stuffy. It's getting hot. Then Paul, it says, verse 9, starts teaching hour upon hour. He continues his message till midnight. And verse 9 says that Eutychus, this young man, was sitting in the window, maybe because of overcrowding, or maybe he's just trying to get some fresh air. And there he is sitting in the window. And look what verse 9 says. He was, the Bible says very specifically, he was sinking into a deep sleep. And then ultimately he was just overcome by sleep. The language speaks of being overtaken by a stronger power and just losing the battle that you're fighting. How picturesque and relevant because I'll tell you, as a pastor, you get to see this process. <laughs> you, you really do. I tell you, you see everything from up here. Everything. I mean, the dynamic just happens. I mean, it, you know, you, you start to see some people, they get the glazed look on their eyes, you know, and then all of a sudden you get, you get the head bob kind of a thing. And then some people try and play it off like they're, and then afterwards they'll nod a few extra times like they're, yeah, pastor, right, right on, yeah, that's good stuff this morning. You know, they throw a few extra nods once they wake back up, where the Bible drop on the floor and the whole row knows you fell asleep when that happens. You know, it, it happens. I understand the process. You know, I mean, we're, we're human beings. We're, we're weak in our flesh. And, and I tell you, I would rather have somebody sleep in church than just skip church. Much rather have somebody sleep in church. At least they're seeking to honor the Lord. The Lord is gracious and, you know, God's word doesn't return void. So I think sleep on osmosis will happen somehow because <laughs> you're still hearing something and eventually it'll bear fruit down the road. Now, let me just say, at least this young man, right, says he was a young man there in verse 9, at least this young man was present at an evening church meeting. And he was willing to stay there until midnight listening to God's word. I have to say that's pretty commendable. Most young people that I know, whether teenage or young adults, rarely have that kind of spiritual desire and appetite. That's, that's kind of unique. That's commendable. If we're going to laugh that he fell asleep in church, let's at least give him a little credit. He was at Sunday night church until midnight as a young man aspiring and hungering for God's word. Would the God that we'd see a powerful move of the spirit to awaken our younger generation and give them appetite for the things of the Lord. Now, let me address the other side of this unique record the Holy Spirit gives us. Sadly, this episode of this young man, Eutychus, falling asleep in church wasn't just embarrassing because when people see him in heaven, they're going to say, aren't you Eutychus? I mean, poor guy. But it wasn't just embarrassing. It also literally was deadly, right? It ended up being a deadly thing. This young man fell asleep during the sermon, and not only did he miss hearing valuable things that God wanted to say to him, but even worse than that, it resulted in him falling asleep in the things of the Lord. It resulted in him falling hard and suffering great personal harm in his life. And you know what? We need to pray for young men, young women, who the world is pulling upon and drawing and trying to diminish their spiritual appetite and keep them asleep spiritually, that the Lord would keep them awake spiritually, that the Lord would awaken them spiritually so that we have less spiritual casualties of young people. You know, I'm tired as a pastor of doing funerals. 
that are suicides from 16-year-olds and 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds who are just checking out because they feel so hopeless and despondent that they just feel like that there's, there's no purpose to keep living. We need to pray the Spirit of God keeps them awake so their lives aren't shipwrecked, so their lives aren't ruined and destroyed. Well, Eutychus falls down from a third story, suffers lethal injuries and dies. But notice, thankfully, Paul was a gracious and understanding man. Look what happens there in verse 10. It says, Paul went down, fell on him, embraced him, said, don't trouble yourselves as life is in him. And verse 12 tells us that they then brought this young man back up to the room alive and everyone was not a little comforted. So Paul, despite this young man's seemingly, follow with me here, hopeless situation, he's just fallen from a third story, maybe broken his neck, he's dead. His situation seems quite impossible and hopeless, but Paul still believed apparently that the Lord could work in his life. Looked pretty hopeless to me. But Paul believed that the Lord could still work in his life. And so he comforts everyone. Hey, don't give up on a situation yet. And then in a pattern, kind of like Elijah or Elisha from the Old Testament says there, verse 10, Paul spread himself out. He fell upon him. That is, Paul made direct personal contact with him in his wounded condition, in his messy situation and embraces this young man in love. And I'm sure he cried out to the Lord in prayer. Lord, have mercy. Spare him, Lord. Save him, Lord. Raise him back up. Lord, we believe that you still have purposes for this young man's life. And the power of the Lord came forth in response and a miracle of healing and restoration happened. It says that this young man came back to life and people were not a little comforted. That is, they were greatly comforted because they saw the restoration of the Lord. Can I just say, by way of application there, thank goodness Paul listened to the Lord. Thank goodness Paul listened to the Lord and did not give up too quickly on the hopeless situation in this young man's life. But instead, Paul, through faith, looked at this young man who appeared hopeless and helpless and said, the Lord can still do something. And he prayed and interceded. And what happened? The Lord spared him. The Lord saved him. The Lord raised him up and gave him a second chance at life. And a powerful work of the Lord happened. Perhaps the Lord in some ways included this for us in the Bible because maybe the Lord wants to remind us that we wouldn't give up too quickly on some young man or some young woman whose situation just seems hopeless, helpless, impossible in the condition they're in now. The Bible says that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. And I believe the Lord wants us to have a heart for those in those situations through loving involvement and personal connection and prayer to believe in the power of the Lord to heal people, to restore people, to give people maybe another chance to raise them back up out of death and darkness. That's always possible. But we, like Paul, might need to take some practical steps. We might need to get directly involved with somebody's messy, wounded situation and give our time and direct attention to embrace the life of maybe some young person whose life is just in a miserable condition, but that may bring the opportunity for a powerful work of the Lord to happen in their life. Never know. We need to retain hope for those who are in such situations. Well, after Paul's used to miraculously raise this man to life, everybody's celebrating, they're astonished. Oh my goodness, this miracle of the Lord. And everybody, right, they're wide awake now. Everybody's got a second wind all of a sudden. 
So verse 11 says, when they'd come up, they broke bread and ate again, had a midnight snack. And then Paul talked a long while, talk about a man of faith, even till daybreak. And then they departed. So after a midnight snack, Paul says, talked a long while. Can I say that is a serious understatement in the Bible? To a long sermon? He talked a long while all the way till daybreak. Look, that pictures to me what Paul did and what the people continued on with him in doing. That pictures incredible practicality in personal commitment to the things of the Lord. I mean, come on. He went till midnight. That was bad enough. Then he went all the way through to daybreak. And Paul kept going and the people stood around for it. That's quite astonishing. Paul and these believers stayed up all night seeking the Lord. Hey, can I ask you a question this morning? Are you willing on occasion to sacrifice some of your precious rest physically to seek the Lord? When I look at a text like this and I realize if they could stay up through the night, surely that diffuses a lot of our, can I say, sometimes petty excuses that we give as Christians. Oh, I can't get up a little bit earlier in the morning to spend time with Jesus before I go to work. I need my sleep, right? I mean, some of the petty excuses we make. My fan favorite, I've raised three kids into adulthood now, of even people, you know, well, I mean, we would like to come to, you know, nighttime meetings or church services, but I mean, that goes till 8.30 at night and our family needs sleep. I'm being facetious and I know I stepped on your toes, but I'm just being honest, the same people will run Johnny to baseball practice three nights a week and dance, you know, lessons and all these other kinds. Of, at least be honest and just say, well, we really just aren't interested in, in doing not, not well, we need sleep. I, I raised three kids and I was a pastor. They were at church way beyond that till 10 o'clock at night. And amazing, none of my kids are in therapy. They're all doing okay. They're not sleep deprived. In fact, I got a daughter that works till four o'clock in the morning and then gets up five hours later and comes to church. Why? Because you begin to realize, well, let's sleep once in a while. Jesus is worthy of being a little tired once in a while. And I'm not being legalistic. Well, oh, pastor's legalistic. He said if we don't come Wednesday night. You're not going to listen to me anyway. It's fine. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm just being honest. But I love the dedication. It's a beautiful thing that the Holy Spirit holds out before us to look at what these people did and their love for Jesus, their longing, just very beautiful, beautiful to see. Let me move on. You're probably very upset. Verse 13. <laughs> We're almost done. Then who went ahead to the ship, sailed to Azos, and there intending to take Paul on board. For so Paul, look at this, had given orders intending himself to go on foot. So again, what happens, they're at Azos, and Paul now sends the rest of the missions team around the peninsula, the 40-mile journey around to get over to the area next, or excuse me, from Troas over to Azos, the 40-mile journey around the peninsula. But Paul, for some reason, decides to take the land route, which is a 20-mile walk south across the land peninsula. Now, Paul says, it says, gave them orders to sail. That was the easiest route. But for some reason, he says, I don't want to take that preferred route. I feel like that I want to walk. And he says, pick me up on the other side. And they said, we intended to pick him up because he wanted to go on foot. He wanted to take a walk. Now, we're not sure the reason why. Maybe Paul wanted to take a walk because maybe he just wanted to be alone a little bit. Maybe Paul at this point perhaps felt inclined to spend a little quiet time alone with the Lord. 
and he just wanted to detach. I and mean, I think we can all understand, right? Sometimes it's necessary and valuable to kind of just disconnect from people a little bit and to just take a walk with the Lord or spend some time quietly with the Lord. And, and especially, I think, when we have busy lives, but we have to take practical steps to do that. Paul said, you know what? You guys sail. I'm just going to walk. I'm just going to take a walk, pick me up on the other side. And, and he just disconnects. Sometimes we've got to be practical, folks. You've got to disconnect. You got to take your phone and you got to go put it on the other end of the house on silent. And then you got to just sit alone with Jesus and read the Bible and, and let God speak to you and spend time and talk with the Lord. Maybe Paul wanted to spend some time in concentrated fellowship with one or two people. Maybe he took somebody along with him. I don't know. Maybe he said, hey, the rest of you sail and Timothy and so you, you guys, let's take a walk. And he just wanted to walk and mentor and talk to them. Again, again just very beautiful to see the practicality of how at times Paul would do such things. Verse 14 says, And when he then met us at Azos, we took him on board, and then we came to Mytilene, and sailed from there. Next day came opposite Chios. Then the following day they arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. So again, Luke's just recording. If you could see on the map there, the pinkish area in the center. They're just taking a southern journey, coming south along the coastal line there, hitting the different ports. But what we do take note is they purposely pass over Ephesus and they land next. It tells us there, verse 15, at Miletus, purposely missing Ephesus. Here's why. Look at verse 16 in conclusion. It says, For Paul had directed to sail past Ephesus so that we would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Again, you take notice, that's very practical. Very practical decisions in Paul's thought he was trying to be at Jerusalem and he was hurrying to try and get to Jerusalem, if possible, it says, by the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, sensing time was limited and he realized, if I stop back at Ephesus where I just was the last three years, we know so many people there and I love those people and those people love me, we're going to just get engaged in fellowship and there'll be ministry opportunities and Paul knew I'll just get preoccupied and it'll slow me down and then I'll end up getting pulled away and I'll end up missing my target, which is I feel like I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem, he says, by the time of the day of Pentecost. So Paul wisely determines to avoid stopping at Ephesus so he can remain focused on what he sensed the Lord was telling him to do next in the next season of his life. Can I just say again, spiritual life, working in connection with making practical decisions. Paul made practical decisions that cooperated with what he sensed the Spirit of God was telling him to do, and the two worked together. Sometimes, I think sometimes as people, we can get held back spiritually because we never take practical measures in our actions and decisions. And sometimes because we don't make practical decisions, we end up getting held back or missing what the Spirit of God may be directing us to do. You may be here this morning. Perhaps the Spirit is directing you to do something or has been telling you to do something. Here's my question. What are you doing about it? What have you done to make practical steps to move in that direction? So important that we remember this. Sometimes we need to exercise practical faith and make decisions that turn into realistic steps of action. Or else, indecision becomes a decision 
to go nowhere. And as believers, we never end up experiencing what we're supposed to because we don't make practical decisions. Or sometimes people never get saved and come to know Jesus because they hear the gospel, the Spirit of God stirs them, but then they never respond to Jesus and salvation. They never make the decision to receive Christ into their life. So important, the practical and the spiritual working hand in hand. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together.